Amen. Thank you, Corey. Hey, church, how are you this morning? So good to see you all. Uh, my name is Brandon. If you don't know me, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, it's been a little bit of a busy morning, so I haven't been able to, to make it around as much as I would like. But if I, if I haven't had a chance to chat with you and this is your first time here or maybe second or third time here and you're still just uh, getting to know us, then uh, just uh, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders. Uh, as I always say and will always say, uh, that affords me the, the opportunity to be able to stand before you and uh, to, to exposit God's Word, to preach from God's Word to you. That's something that I consider to be a great joy and a great delight, a great honor. Um, we are in a series uh, on John, in John, and we are currently in John chapter 3. So if you want to start making your way there, you can. I invite you to do so. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, I don't know that there's been any today, but I just do want to, if you haven't noticed over the past couple of weeks, we have been having some issues with the projectors. We don't have any slides today other than the songs, but if the projector uh, screens go out and then come back on, just, you know, we, we're, we're trying to figure it out, right? Um, technology is great when it works, but when it doesn't, it's uh, it's very frustrating thing. But... Um, Nevertheless, uh, the, the thing I want to, to share with you this morning as we, we look at John chapter 3, uh, we're going to be in verses 16 through 21, and um, I want to say before we get to that, that uh, there, there are going to be some, some differing uh, opinions or, or, or interpretations or understandings of Scripture that I'm going to share with you today. Um, many of you probably know this, maybe not all, but um, I think there's a fair amount of uh, theological unity amongst us as elders, uh, JT, myself, and then, and then Tony uh, as an elder candidate. Um, but we don't line up perfectly on everything. And this morning, I, um, as I desire to be faithful to the text, I want you to hear this. Uh, my desire above all things isn't to say something new to you. It isn't trying to, to persuade you to, to think one way or another. I simply just want to be faithful in interpreting the text and let the text speak for itself. But with that being said, uh, I, I'm going to just share with you uh, some, some ideas, uh, some, some theological uh, principles, some doctrines within the church, if you will, that as elders, we're still, we're, you know, we're, there's, there's small gaps here and there, and we're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to navigate that together. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's, that's one of the beautiful things about being a part of a church, right? As, as we have many different parts and members that make up that body that all do different things and operate in different ways, we're trying to figure out how to make those function in the greatest uh, amount of unity, all for the sake of honoring uh, the Lord. So I'll tell you this, um, my desire is to be gentle, my desire is to be loving, but above all, hear this, my desire is to be faithful to the text. If the scriptures offend you, please understand me, I'm fine with that, but I don't want my words to offend you. Do you understand? I'm okay if God's word offends us, if it stretches us, if it causes us to feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I don't want to be guilty, Brandon, with the words that I speak to offend you. Do you believe me? Okay, thank you. Last week, Jake Miller was here. If you don't know who Jake is, Jake is uh, used to be an elder here at the church, and he has since uh, moved on to plant a church in Pleasant Hope called Shepherd's Way, a church that, that we support and partner with. My life group in particular uh, spends a great deal of time praying for them, and, and we go up and we see them from time to time and the things that they have to do. We were hoping to, uh, to do something like that tonight as they, if you don't know, they've, they've, they've got land, they've closed on it, they're going to start building uh, their, their church, their community center there on that land, and they're going to have a celebration tonight. But... Um, my life, my life group meets on Sunday nights, so uh, we, we greatly enjoy fellowship with one another. So um, you guys, you don't need to know all of this. Jake was here last week is what you need to know, that uh, he, he was preaching from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And he's covering, he covered this first half of a conversation that we see take place between Jesus and Nicodemus. And today, I think, is a continuation of that conversation. 
I want to go back and I want to cover just a little bit of it for context. Right, because in, in John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, uh, we see that Jesus, uh, John rather, sorry, says that the people uh, that, that were there for Passover feast, that were there in Jerusalem, they were believing in Jesus. And you're going to see how this is going to connect to the text that we're in today. But they believed in Jesus because they saw the signs that he was performing. They saw the miracles that he was doing and they believed him and they followed after him. However, we're also told that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. And so Jesus didn't entrust himself to them as Savior because he knew, if you can remember through the text, when the crowds surrounded Jesus and began to follow him, Jesus said some hard things. Like, you must, if, if you are of me, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And what happened? People scattered. People said, oh, this is, this is too hard of a thing to believe, and they left. So the question is begged, did they believe in Christ as Messiah, or were they just following Jesus who was performing miracles? Is there a difference? So it tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. That is to say, that they saw the miracles performed, but they didn't believe in him as Savior. And he knew this. John follows this up in chapter 3 with an example of this very kind of person with Nicodemus. Right? If you were here last week or if you know the story, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the upper Sanhedrin. So it says in the text that he was a ruler of the Jews. That meant that he was a part of a, a group of men that doled out judgment to the people of Israel based on their understanding of the Old Testament law. Right? They knew the word of God, the Old Testament law, so well that they were the rulers of the Jews. And this was Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus under the cover of night. Because he wants to know, he wants to ask of Jesus how it is he's doing, what, what am I to make of these things that you're doing, Jesus? What am, I, what am I to think of these miracles that you're performing? We know that you must be of God. So he comes to seek an answer for these signs. And Nicodemus, however, I, I believe, and I think Jake shared with us last week, at this point, I think Nicodemus, he doesn't know Christ as Savior. He isn't reborn, as Jesus is telling him, that we must be born again. And, and Nicodemus' response was what? How do I enter into my mother's womb a second time? How, how, now that I'm old, how am I to be born again? He needs to have this experience. Jesus explains to him in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 3. The people to whom Jesus was not entrusting himself had not been spiritually re reborn. And, and Nicodemus, listen church, as a ruler of the Jews, he's no exception. He explains, that is Jesus, explains the new birth to Nicodemus in, in terms of the cleansing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit, right? That's chapter 3, verse 5. He's drawing back from Ezekiel chapter 36. I know I'm giving you a lot right now. And we're not going to go back and read that. But, but Nicodemus would have known this. He would have known the text that Jesus was pointing at and saying that this new birth it is, is a work of, of a cleansing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit. But he also says that, that it is also connected to uh, the resurrection of dry bones, which you see in Ezekiel chapter 37. Again, Nicodemus would have known this. He would have been familiar with this text. So just take a glance at, we're not going to read them because this was last week's passage, but, but chapter 3, verse 9 and following. And I'm going to do a quick run through for you for what Nicodemus' response is. He responds in confusion. And Jesus faults him for this. He faults him for not understanding this. He says to him, you're a ruler of the Jews. You, you are a teacher of the law. How is it, Nicodemus, that you don't know this? You should know this. I don't think he's being gentle. I think there is a sense of a spirit of gentleness within Christ in this conversation. But I think, again, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, when I believe Jesus rebuked his own mother at the wedding of Cana, 
Jesus is doing the same thing with Nicodemus here, who is intentionally seeking, sincerely seeking the truth. He wants to know the answer. But Jesus faults him for not understanding this and for also not receiving his testimony. But not only that, Jesus also charges Nicodemus with not believing what he told him about earthly things. And then he proceeds to tell him heavenly things about Jesus' identity and his mission. And Jake did such a good job unpacking this last week. As, as Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man from Daniel, which again, Nicodemus would have known. He wouldn't have missed this. Jesus describes his mission to accomplish the fulfillment of the lifting up of the bronze serpent in the wilderness by Moses. Again, Jake shared with us last week. That's Numbers chapter 21. If you weren't here, go back and listen to that message. Go back and read that text. But Jesus is saying that he, he is the fulfillment of that, that uh, of that typology, that, that symbol of in the Old Testament, the serpent being lifted up and, and the Israelites looking to it and being saved and being healed of uh, their infirmities from these, these fiery serpents. That is a typology of, of what is to come. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he is the fulfillment of that, that when Jesus is lifted up, just as the serpent was, that those who believe in him will have eternal life. They will be healed. They will be reborn. Are you seeing the connection? Now, your Bible probably has a break after verse 15. And there's probably a subheading that says, for God so loved the world. But in certain translations, in particular uh, the New American Standard Bible, they don't place a break here. They include verses 16 through 21 as a continuation of, of the, the conversation with Nicodemus in 1 through 15. And this is where Jesus gives some clarification to the things that he said back in verses 1 through 15. So with that being said, let's turn, if you're not there already, to John chapter 3. Verses 16 through 21. This is the reading of God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Church, let's pray. Great God in heaven, Lord, we come to you now just humbly uh, submitting to your will and your way. Father, I ask that your spirit would come and move amongst us and stir our hearts, teach our minds, Lord, convict our souls where necessary. Father, that we would seek to know the truth of your word and apply it to our lives today. That's my desire, that you would be honored and glorified in all that is said and done here today in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray unto you, Lord, the thanksgiving that we give, the worship that you so greatly deserve. God, be glorified in us. Father, we love you. We thank you. I'm so grateful for this, this word that you've given us in this letter that, that, that you, your spirit, inspired John to write. Teach us from it today. God, keep us humble. Keep our eyes fixed on our Savior. We ask it in his name. Amen. So going to the text, the very first word that we come to is the word for, F-O-R, for. I believe this is likely connecting back, as I've already said, to, to, the, to verse 15, and it explains what happened to make it possible for what Jesus said, to have eternal life. And so this first word, for, it's drawing back to that. 
What happened to make possible those things that Jesus said to, to Nicodemus? The answer is this. God loved and God sent his son. All right, to make eternal life possible that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about in verse 15, we see in verse 16, it's God loved and God sent his son. All right, for God so loved the world, and you've heard this before. You've probably memorized this from childhood, and, and you've known it up until this day. For God so loved the world. John 3.16 is probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible on the gospel. So much so that, that Martin Luther referred to it as the gospel in miniature. He said that the gospel was contained all in just this one verse. It is the heart of the gospel. And the Greek construction of this sentence, it emphasizes, church, please hear me and understand this, the fullness of God's love, the full measure of God's love for that which he created. Not only that, though, the greatness of his gift which he gave, which we'll see in just a moment. But understand that this would have been an astounding statement for Nicodemus or any Jew in that day. For God so loved the world. Because up until this moment, really, for the most part, and, and, and arguably uh, would have been a correct belief that God's love and communion and fellowship throughout the Old Testament was almost singularly with Israel. There are some exceptions we see along the way, but God's love and communion was, was primarily for his people Israel in the Old Testament. And now Jesus is showing Nicodemus that there is a new and a different way. There is a new reality, and that is that God's love and communion is now provided for all peoples. All people of the world. Gentiles, which is everyone who isn't Israel, everyone who isn't Jewish. So arguably, most if not all of us here in this room today fall into that category. Being Gentile, being not Israel. And this is all made possible for those who believe in Christ for eternal life. So understand something, that, that God's love, God's love for the world, it wasn't just some tender emotion that caused him to react. This love that God has for the world, it isn't just an emotional response that God has unto his people. Because see, and I know this might, this might make some of us uncomfortable, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you to think deeply about this. God doesn't have emotions in the sense of where he, he is changed or moved in any way. Right? If, if I were to tell you that God is unchanging, you would say amen. But if I were to tell you that that means that God doesn't have emotions and respond out of emotions, you'd be like, well, I, I don't know. May, maybe. But if God is responding in John 3.16 out of, out of an emotional reaction, then doesn't it, doesn't it argue... This is a specific action that the Lord willed before the foundation of the world. Right before, the, before the creation of the world, God knew that this moment was coming. Not just because he looked down the corridor of time and he saw it happening. It's because before the foundation of the world occurred, he willed that this moment would happen. And church, that doesn't take anything. That doesn't take any of the significance away from the text at all. That God is acting in this very specific way that he willed. That he gave his only son by sending him to earth as a man to suffer and die and bear the penalty for our sins. Romans chapter 3, it's all right there if you remember in our Roman series. Church, we, we are lawbreakers. We are enemies of God. We needed our Savior to come and to live a perfectly righteous life and to offer a perfectly righteous sacrifice that we could never, ever, ever afford to pay. That song that we sing, Jesus paid it all. All of it. We, Samuel's prayer. So, so like the, the, what we offered unto our salvation is, is the sin that we commit, the sin that we are guilty of. 
God gave his son. He sent him to earth as a man to suffer and die and bear the penalty of our sins. And the purpose of giving his son was to make his gift of eternal life available to anyone in the world who believes and personally trusts in him. Now, I need to point something out here that that is pretty important. This might take a minute, so stay with me. But when we look at verse 16, we come across... I'm not going to break all of this down entirely, uh, but we come across uh, the, the first clause in the Greek in this verse. I think it, it, it's significant because it captures a slightly different sense of the text than what we're used to hearing. Right? What we're used to hearing is, for God so loved the world. For, for God so loved the world this much that he gave. However, many biblical language scholars suggest, I spent a great deal of time reading uh, in the biblical languages this week and and tried to wrap my head around it as as much as I could because as I said, I want to be faithful to the text. Biblical language scholars suggest that it seems much more accurate to read it this way. For this is how God loved the world that he gave his son. Rather than saying God loved the world so much so much more than something else that he gave his son, but instead to say that this is how God loved the world, that he gave his son. So it is to say that that God loved the world in this way rather than in this amount. He loved the world by sending his son So the quantity of God's love, like I said, that God loved the world so much, I don't think that's what's in view here. It doesn't seem to be what's being addressed by John. And again, hear me, church, this in no way takes away from the beauty of this verse. God's love is still present. God's love for humanity, for his creation, it's still present. God loved the world. I'm not taking away from that at all by this reading the, the, the text in this manner. But in addition to this, uh, this word world is, is being used in, in much more of a general sense. And that is to say that, that God loved that which he made, which of course is his greatest creation, mankind, humanity, you and I. I want you to to think of it this way, if you will. And this isn't going to be a a perfect equivalent, I know. but, But many of you know that I'm a fan of coffee, to say the least. I love coffee. Some of you call me a coffee snob. I've embraced it. I wear it as a badge of honor. It's fine. I love coffee. I love everything about coffee. I love the smell of coffee. I love the taste of coffee. I love, uh, this may sound foreign to you, but to sit down and drink a cup of coffee, I would refer to uh, like as the, I love the experience of drinking coffee and all that comes with it. The quiet, the, just everything. The, just the, the lifting of the cup, putting it down. I love coffee. I love roasting coffee. I love all of the different brewing methods for coffee. You get, you get the picture. I love coffee. But that does not mean that I'm going to love every cup of coffee that you set down in front of me. As I said, I know that's not a perfect equivalence, but I love coffee in a very general sense. I love coffee. And I think this is the same sense that John is expressing with the word world, that God loves that which he made. He loves mankind. He loves his creation. Jesus told Nicodemus that God loved the world by sending his own son to be lifted up on a cross. In the same way that the serpent was lifted up, in the wilderness by Moses. He gave his only begotten son so that those who believe in him would not perish. 
And those words, not perish, it means eternal judgment, separation from God. And this is in contrast to those who believe and have eternal life, a life that is full of abundant joy, immeasurable blessing, the presence of God forever. If you can remember two weeks ago when I preached on the wedding at Cana and Jesus provided the, the, the wine for the wedding party and it was the good wine that, that came after people had already had plenty of the other wine. I talked about the stone uh, ceremonial pots that were full of water that symbolized the Old Testament rites and rituals of, of cleansing and how Jesus, they filled them up to the brim. They were all the way to the top. And Jesus transforms that water in, into wine, which is a symbol of, of joyous occasions, celebration, abundance, happiness. Those who believe in Christ have that. That is what our eternal life is. We have that experience already, that blessing in this present lifetime. But, but also understand that, that that's not in full. We still walk that out. We still, we still walk out our sanctification daily in our lives as Christians. We know that we have eternal life. That's what we say when, when we use the phrase already but not yet. Have you heard that? We're, we're already saved, but, but, but not quite yet. And that isn't to say that we, we, in some small measure, aren't of God. We are, but we are still being saved. We have been saved, and we are still being saved. This is eternal life. This is the, the abundant joy, immeasurable blessing. Let's go back to the text. Look at verse 17. John chapter 3, verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here we see very clearly the mission of the Son. It isn't to condemn the world. It is to save the world through himself. And again, in, in the Greek, this verb translated to condemn it means to judge adversely so christ didn't come to adversely judge the world right which is what nicodemus was really after in his questions and jake covered that again like are you going are you going to rise up are you going to to take this seat the throne are you going to to get israel out from underneath the the oppressive thumb of of the roman empire Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but understand something, church, that judgment does come through him. But that's not the purpose of his first coming. And this is because, if you don't know, the world is already judged. The world already stands condemned. We know this is true because we see this in the next verse. That everyone who doesn't believe is already condemned. Instead, Christ enters into that lowly estate in order to save those who believe and eventually condemn those who do not, which will occur at his second coming. That's when he will, pull, he will, he will pour out the fullness of the wrath of God upon those who do not believe. I think it appears really clear in these next four verses that we're going to look at that not all of the world will be saved. We know this. You, you, you most likely wouldn't argue with that. We're not universalists. We don't believe ultimately that in the end, love wins. Yes, the love of God wins, but that doesn't mean that he just lets everyone in. And as you have these these. Christian at one time, perhaps, um, I would argue not, but these, these, these pastors who, who are now apostate, who write books to say that God just allows everyone in at the end, that love wins in the end. He just embraces it all. We don't hold to that. We don't believe that. That isn't the gospel. We see here in this text clearly, clearly, that not everyone will be saved, that some will be condemned, but that God's purpose in sending Christ was to bring salvation to those who would believe. 
This is the sense in which, hear me church, he is the savior of the world. Do you see how world is used in a general, that Jesus isn't the savior for those who don't believe. He is the savior for those who do. That is the sense in which he is the savior of the world. Looking at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So John very clearly distinguishes here between those who believe and are not condemned and those who do not believe and stand condemned already. Those who, who don't believe and trust in Christ, they understand something. They don't have a neutral standing before God. God already knows the outcome. They don't have a positive or neutral standing before God. John says they stand condemned already. That means that ultimately his, his wrath is already upon the one who disbelieves in Christ. And his judgment is already upon them because they haven't trusted in Christ for salvation. If you were to look forward to, to John chapter 3, verse 36, you'll see that it says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. It's already there. This includes any person, anywhere, who sincerely follows some other religion and looks up to the stars and they believe that there's something up there but they don't know what it is, but they believe in that for some type of eternal life with their God. That applies to that individual just the same. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. No one. This was also true regarding the saints in the Old Testament. Right? We've shared that from the stage before, that the, the saints in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the Messiah, to the coming Messiah. They believed in him. They entrusted, they placed their faith in him. Tried to stay in John as much as I could. John chapter 8, verse 56 tells us that Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day. Abraham. The Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, tells us that Moses considered the reproach of Christ a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So I'm telling you emphatically that there is no salvation, absolutely zero salvation apart from faith, repentance, confession in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord over your entire life. I'm going to say that one again. There is no salvation whatsoever apart from faith, repentance, confession in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord over your entire life. Now please hear me. This does not automatically mean that your family, your disbelieving family and friends stand without a chance of salvation. It doesn't mean that. Part of the, the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. Those were Jesus' words unto sinners. As much as we want to say today that the, the loving Christian thing to do isn't to point out someone's sin, church, that's a lie. Jesus said clearly to sinners that he, he encountered, repent, the kingdom of hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not only that, unless you repent, unless you repent, you will likewise all perish. Time still remains for repentance and faith. So I, I, I'm charging you. I say this 
in, in, in the, the most emphatic way that I can. I am charging each one of you and myself included. I'm charging you by the authority of the scripture to pray daily for them and boldly preach the gospel. Pray, preach the gospel. But know that if they remain in their disbelief and wickedness, then they will remain in darkness. John tells us this, church. I'm not telling you this. This is what the text says. Jesus explains in, in verses 19 through 21 why some flee the light, why some remain in darkness and others come to the light. How people respond to the light indicates how they relate to the new birth, which is what Jesus is talking about. In, in response to Jesus's, or Nicodemus' question, how can a man be born when he is old? So let's look at the last three verses, 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. You could also read it as this is the verdict. Again, in, in the, the Greek, this word for judgment is crisis. This is the crisis. This is the judgment. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We know that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the revelation of God, and he is the means of holiness. But yet people love the darkness instead of the light. Because their deeds were evil. People valued their pride more than truth. They, they valued their own uh, assumed self-autonomy, that they were, they were in charge of their own life. They value that more than faith. Not only that, it tells us they hate the light. And they don't come to it for fear that their works would be exposed. That word exposed, in the original language, it, it doesn't just mean that their works are seen evidentially. That, that you, you see the evidence of their, their wickedness. It, it also means that there is rebuke and shame and guilt. So they hate the light because the light exposes their sin and their shame. And it convicts and it, and it, it charges them as guilty. And so they hate the light. Church, do we, do we not see that in our own culture today? Do you see it, that, that we celebrate things? I say we, as in our culture, as our society, we celebrate things that God hates. Where, where men want to pretend that they're women and dress up as women. Where, where we, we want to enter into same-sex relations and same-sex marriages. All of these things that are detestable. The, the, the text says these things are an abomination of God. There are only a handful of things in the text that refer to or are referred to as an abomination. These things are things that fall into that camp because they, they so greatly profane the created order of our God. They basically are saying, not even basically, they are emphatically saying that God, the things that you made that are good, that you love, I hate them. They're wrong. You're wrong. You don't exist. These things are good. We'll celebrate these things. The world hates the light and loves the darkness. That is everywhere today. And we have churches say, don't say things like that. That's not loving your neighbor. 
Church is not saying things and letting people go to hell. Is that loving? No, pray, preach the gospel, speak the truth, call people to repentance. The alternative is, is to live by truth, live by the light, which means to act faithfully, to trust in God's word, to believe in God's word. The lover of darkness despises the light, but, but we're told that the lover of light, that, that, that those who want truth believe in truth, we come to the light. We seek out the light. John says this in the text. And it, listen, understand something, church. It isn't because of anything on our own part. We don't see the, the light and just within ourselves say, that looks nice. I, I believe that. I want that. Church, understand something. That, that it is, a, and we're going to see it in the text. It is a work of God within us that allows us to even see the light and want the light. I believe in my heart of hearts that if I, me personally, Brandon, if I were left with the opportunity and responsibility to choose light or darkness all on my own, even with, even with the text laid out in front of me, I would choose darkness every single time apart from the work of God in my life. Why? Because we are idolaters. Because we are affected by the plague of sin. And because of that, we love ourselves and we're tempted to hate the things of God. John Calvin said that the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. We love ourselves. We want what we want. Do we not see that in the text? If you were with us in the, the series in, in Exodus, God performs unspeakable unspeakable, unimaginable miracles for Israel to bring them out of Egypt. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And what does Israel do down at the bottom of the mountain? They make a golden calf and they call it God. That's idolatry. Why? Why would they do that? Because sin. Because we are corrupted by the effects of sin. The wages of sin is death. But God, being rich in mercy, he intercedes. So this desire to follow the light, it, it, it isn't because of any work on our own. There isn't any hidden knowledge that we've discovered. There isn't some, some favorable merit that we earned with God. Verse 21 states to me really clearly that this is the work of God. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Works carried out in God. If we enjoy the light, it is because God made it possible by the work of his power. We're not told in this passage how one moves from, from darkness to light. We're only told that there is a very clear difference between those who reject the light and those who delight in it. One commentator that I read put it this way. He said, the purpose of these verses is to make people see the imminence of the danger and why people hate the light. He goes on to say that John stresses these points in the hope that his readers will turn to the lifted up son of man with the same simple, unqualified faith as the Israelites who turned to the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Jesus draws from that story of the bronze serpent in the wilderness to reveal what's necessary for the new birth. Nicodemus asked him, how can I be born again? And Jesus' answer was, look upon the cross. We have to give up our, de our dependence on ourselves. 
We, we have to, to give up on, on our intellect. We have to give up on our, our own attempts of self-improvement. We have to give up on our own pious religious practices and simply look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Set your eyes upon the Savior. And I don't believe Nicodemus understood this during this, this private meeting with Jesus. He missed it. However, I agree with what, what Jake stated, stated last week that I think when Nicodemus saw Christ hanging on the cross, the scales, the proverbial scales were removed from his eyes and he was able to see and believe. And we see this evidence in him joining Joseph of Arimathea to remove the body from the cross, to prepare his body for burial, and to put him in the tomb. He believed. He saw and believed because he set his eyes on the cross. He remembered the conversation with Jesus and the reference to the serpent being raised up in the wilderness. He connected the dots. He understood now. He saw. His spiritual eyes were opened to all that Christ had said and done, and he saw all of that being connected to the Old Testament. Church, understand something. Jesus Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament because he fulfills all of those prophecies. He not only matches but exceeds what was typified in the Old Testament. Think again of, of what I said to you a couple of weeks ago, that, that Jesus wasn't just a better Adam. He was the perfect Adam because he came and he perfected all that the first Adam failed to do. All that the first Adam did to corrupt the world with sin Christ came as the perfect Adam to fulfill all of those things. So there can be no other response than to commit our entire soul to him, to seek to walk in his light. And to do so means to, to leave the darkness, to leave those wicked things behind, to repent of our sins, to walk out our, our faith in fear and trembling before God. To continually repent of sin, not because we are still guilty of it, but we still very much feel the effects and the consequences of sin. So here is how I will conclude where the rubber meets the, the road, so to speak, what we do with this text ultimately. This repentance that I speak of, it is only possible when a person receives this new birth that Christ speaks about. To turn from darkness to light is entirely a work of God. But we respond in repentance. And repentance leads to exposure and, uh, of sin and shame and guilt. And there's fear in that. John tells us that people hate the light for fear of being exposed. But understand it's the only path whereby one will be saved. Forgiven, cleansed. And then the encouraging part is to be empowered to fight sin. Puritan pastor John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, that we should seek to mortify, to put to death every single day our sin. We can do that through this repentance, through this faith in the Christ who was lifted up on the cross. So my plea with you, if you are here today and you remain in the dark, then pray. Pray to the Lord to make Real to you the truth of your sin, your guilt, your enmity before God. Pray that he will reveal that to you through the working of his Holy Spirit. Pray that he will, will open your eyes to see the richness of the gospel of Christ and that this would lead you into repentance, that you would come today and you would confess and you would pray and believe in Christ as your Savior. For those of you here who have already been called out of that darkness, praise God, glory to God. 
and you, are in, you walk in the light of Christ, then pray that you may have a grace that, that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, to walk as children of the light. Does your life reflect what I have talked about today? And that's, that's a word for me as much as it is for you, church. Does our life reflect that of Christ? Are we walking out as children of the light? Proving yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights to the world. This is your calling. This is the work that we are to be about. So I invite you, we're going we're gonna to pray and then we're going to spend a little bit more time offering up our, our praise to God in song, worshiping him. Just respond. Whether in your seats or I'm going to be over here and you can come, we can talk, we can pray. Let me pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that it holds. Help us to be unashamed of it in all things, to believe that it is sufficient for truth and life, that it is enough, that we don't need more than the word that you gave us. It is the revelation of yourself unto your most precious creation, so help us to hold it dear. Help us to seek to live our lives by what we read within its pages, that we would be people of God who were also people of the word, that we would be like the Bereans, that we would test things, teachings with your word. Father, I ask that you would bring us to unity as a, a church body, that, that we would seek to worship you, to serve you, to be your ambassadors, that we would, we would desire to do that as one. Father, even if that requires conversations along the way, our desire would be to honor you, to, to hold fast to the truth of your word, to seek to know it and to believe it as one. Give us unity in that. But Father, that we wouldn't seek unity apart from the truth of your word because there is no unity there. So Lord, I just ask now, as we sing and as we pray, just allow your spirit to move, cause us to respond. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We honor you with all that we do and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.